are there people I might have contempt for? I mean, people that were just intoxicated with hatred and evil people. But most people aren't like that. Most people think they're trying, kind of trying to do the right thing. Maybe they're not doing it intelligently or they're poorly informed. But I worry that if we approach one another in this increasingly divided tribes, common enemy politics, instead of trying to get them to understand that we share humanity, you treat them as an enemy. You have contempt. You dehumanize, you objectify, you demonize. We have too much of that right now. It's tempting because it's exhilarating. I mean, hate is an intoxicating emotion, but it's a dangerous emotion. And it's not, I can't think of any great social movement of social progress that proceeded on hatred. The civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the women's rights movement, the great leaders were able to show our common humanity. You changed minds by opening hearts and unleashing people's empathy and humanity. That is Christina Hoff Summers, and this is episode 276 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my show, a special midweek version of the show because I wanted you to hear this before the events that my guest is a part of, um, basically before they've happened. I'm speaking with Christina Hoff Summers today, and she's a part of the hashtag feminist events, which are happening in Sydney on Friday and on Sunday in Melbourne. Christina will debate Roxanne Gay on stage. I uh, wish I could be there. It will definitely be an interesting, interesting conversation. If you're new to this show, uh, what is this show? Well, it's a conversation designed to hopefully make today better than yesterday. And that's really all it is. Um, there's 275 other episodes to check out. I'd, I'd invite you to do so. Thank you very much to all the uh, the pictures that people have been sending in of where they listen to the show. It's called a podsy, like a selfie, but a podsy, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. Um, people listening on road trips, people listening on bicycles, on long training runs, getting ready for triathlons, and, and fabulously, someone listening poolside in Bali. Thrilled to be there with you. Thank you so much. Um, just tag me on Instagram or, or shoot me an email, send us your email at gmail.com. Thanks also to everybody that's getting on board to come see the live gigs, uh, Canberra, Wollongong and the Gold Coast. Tickets are selling really, really well, so don't wait. Um, I had to go the full farnham to get this next run of shows happening. I, I don't know when it'll happen again, but each gig is meet and greet. There'll be books on sale at each gig, and we're, we've got merch now. We're like a proper tour. It's, it's a real thing. It's exciting. <laughs> Um, before I get to my guest today, I just wanted to just, I guess I'll just preface the conversation a bit. A quick Google search of Christina Hoff Summers will tell you that she's a pretty divisive figure. She talks about things deemed by some as controversial. She considers herself a feminist and robustly challenges long held beliefs in the feminist movement. Now, I don't agree with some of the things that she says in this conversation, but I think it's important to have conversations like this. It's important that we engage with people who we're not 100% aligned to and that we do try and find common ground. That, for me, is, is that's the path forward out of the, the issue that we're in in our, in our country and in, indeed our world at the moment. I'm part of a, uh, a group chat. We're all in a group chat. I'm in a group chat with um, 
the guy that played poker with also in a group chat with my former classmates from the Think School in Amsterdam. Uh, they're all incredibly smart people. They've got PhDs and stuff. Um, the weird guy who showed up. Um, so they're all very clever people. And um, we were talking about the shift away from discourse with the other side of politics, whatever the side that might be to yours. If you're Australian, you might be a hardcore liberal voter and therefore you don't want to hear anything a Labor voter has to say. Um, and, you know, basically talking about how useful that is. Um, we were talking about living in our echo chambers, the, this echo chamber of our phone and unknowingly getting into an us and them mentality when everyone and everything in our phone's feed agrees with what we're saying so that when we see or hear something that we disagree with, if we shout it down, if we treat it cynically, if we treat it with contempt, we're cheered by those we're already sided with. But in my opinion, this is away from that chat now, in my opinion... Well, that can lead us into trouble because all we're doing is shutting ourselves off to new ideas if we do that and we're entrenching the ideas that might not be serving us very well or might not be serving us as well as they could or maybe not, not more useful anymore. We close up our minds to new ways of doing things when we do that and in many ways we become what we mock. We become closed-minded. Now, bear in mind, I do have limits around this. I'm trying more and more to get into conversations with people who have differing viewpoints from mine, but I do try to make sure that we at least have an accepted base reality that we can agree upon. One example, I guess, would be having a, a conversation with someone about whether we voraciously pursue renewable energy at the same time as working on decarbonizing the atmosphere in an effort to offset or minimize climate catastrophe, or do we just save time and money and start building the seawalls and planning the mass relocations from the coastlines. Now, now, while confronting both of those points of view, accept that climate change is a real thing, and that's a reality that I can accept. I would struggle having those kind of conversations or trying to you know, discuss those kinds of things with someone who denies that climate change is real or as, as severe as it is. So yeah, that being said, let's get to my guest. 
My guest today is Christina Hoff-Summers. She's a former philosophy professor at Clark University in the US and currently a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You can find her on Twitter, C.H. Summers with an O. So S-O-M-M-E-R-S. Her work mainly focuses on gender politics, feminism and free speech in universities. She's out in Australia for the hashtag feminist events with Roxanne Gay. There's a, an event in Sydney on the ninth, uh, Friday night, the 29th, and in Melbourne on Sunday night, the 31st. Now, I know that Christine is a divisive figure, and I, I personally don't agree with some of the things that she said in that conversation, but I get where she's coming from, and I get why she's coming at those topics from those angles. I felt it was important to have a conversation with someone that I might disagree with on some part of their message, but at the same time, try to find places that we may connect. And you'll hear a few times that we do indeed find some resonance. But the larger focus on the conversation for me was really figuring out what it is to be her, to be someone who's shouted down in universities, to be excommunicated from an academic faculty that she's been a part of for so long for questioning a status quo. Even though Christina does question the value of trigger warnings in this conversation, I'll tell you right now, one of her big topics that she covers is sexual assault on campuses. So if that's an issue for you, perhaps you'll want to... Nah, you can check back in for the next episode on Monday. If you want to reach out to her, she's very active on Twitter. She's C-H Summers, C-H-S-O-M-M-E-R-S. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Let's come now to, to Erskineville, which is in the inner western don't park here district. <laughs> Seriously, there was no parking anywhere. Um, of Sydney. <laughs> And I have a conversation with Christina Hoff-Summers. Welcome, Christine. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here. I'm grateful that, that you're here. Um, I'm grateful that we have a chance to, to speak today. Um, just to paint a bit, of a bit of a picture, I'm kind of interested as to what, what, was your, what was your original path to feminism and what did life look like for you before that? Well, I've been a feminist as long as I can remember. My mother was a feminist and one of my earliest memories is of, I mean, in, of reading serious literature was my mother gave me memoirs of a dutiful daughter from Simone de Beauvoir and then had a fight with my ninth grade teacher who said, that's not appropriate, you know, for a young lady. I don't know what I got out of it because I went back and read it and as an, a, a, an older person. I don't know what my mother was thinking, but I just have always been. And then when I was teaching philosophy and the chair of my department asked me to teach feminist theory... It asked me if I wanted to, and I thought, why not? I'm a feminist, you know. I thought back of the books that I loved. And but you, you marched and things like that when you were quite young, right? I was too young to march. There really weren't. You know, the thing is, it wasn't about marching. Being a feminist, I hate to say the years because it's before anybody out there was ever born, but back in the last century, um, it was just fun. It was just being free and I mean, today there are all these rules and everybody's in trouble and getting called out and triggered. There was nothing about triggering. It was about, it was about joy and about liberation. And as a young woman growing up in Southern California, it was like we could be as wild as the boys. Now, instead of wanting to be equal to men, it's like women are asking to be protected because men are so suddenly deemed toxic and dangerous. So... The feminism that I grew up with, I'm not willing to give it up. People say, well, well don't call yourself that. I'm not going to give it up. Who, who said that these, sort of, there's a new school kind of fainting couch feminists who are triggered by everything and need safe spaces? That, that is not what feminism is. That's what it's 
become in certain quarters on many campuses. I would like I would like to get into that, particularly the stuff about the campuses, um, because I I'm fascinated by the ability to express thought and you know to to throw a topic in the air that we could probably all agree is is tricky to talk about, right. but it's important to have it up there so we can talk about it. I do want to get into that, but I just kind of a, a little paint a little more of the picture as to what when. Post-World War II, why was feminism important? Why was the movement so important? Well, for one thing, we during the Second World War, women had were indispensable in industry and just had to take positions that men had occupied. And there was a – and feminist historians have written about this – there was a real resolve after the Second World War – to, for the country to show its respect and regard for women and the mood in the country among conservatives and liberals united was for the Equal Rights Amendment. Everyone, it was a conservative initiative as much as a liberal initiative. And we then got a kind of golden age of feminism, which was the 60s, the 1960s and early 70s. And, and Congress was just passing legislation as quickly as it could in eliminating barriers to women, the Supreme Court. Often these were conservatives who would knock down just arbitrary things, you know, that uh, women that worked for the government, you know, couldn't get pensions, but the men could, or that you had to have your husband's approval to get credit. All these things were just knocked away. And that was, you know, it was part of just general sort of progress and people's just expa expanded consciousness and awareness of basic equality, the importance for basic equality. But it did, it was sort of prompted by women's performance during the Second World War. And the idea that, oh, look, the sky didn't fall in. The sky and didn't fall in. You know and, what? We, and we were pretty good. Yeah, and we were and indispensable. And we were kind of awesome. <laughs> she's got a point. Why does she need her father or husband's signature on the bottom of this form when her brother doesn't? Or her brother, or whatever, doesn't that's that? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, fair call, fair call. I will just quickly. I know you've only been in the country a little while, but uh, here in Australia, the definitions are, and it might, you know, perhaps helps you on your debate that you're doing later in the week. Um, the liberal word. Have you been people talked to you about this already? Oh no, I know. You, you mean, know you're talking one? about the political parties? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just to, for people listening, though, uh, when when liberal means when you speak liberal, <laughs> when you speak about liberal in our country, the Liberal Party is probably anything but they are the very conservative right. party. Uh, very. They are the conservative party. Elements of it are very conservative. Elements inside the coalition are as far over as you can get. All right. Uh, and yeah, da there's some dangerous elements to that coalition, I'm aware. I've, I've watched yeah. the current so, controversy. So just, just to, for people who are okay, listening so to understand, no, 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 you go right ahead and say liberal because it's important because you're describing what's happened in America. But just for when people listening, that's what, just to, that, that, that's what you're talking about. Um, so that, that wave of feminism, which we should mention, is less than 50 years since suffrage. Like it's extraordinary to believe that it's not even been 100 years um, in this country since, since women got the vote. It's just mind-boggling to, to think about to think about that. So then where did you and feminism start to – where did you start to see things going a little awry with how you felt about being a feminist and what it was to be a feminist? Well, it was when in the uh, mid-'80s when I – um, was asked, I was, I was a young philosophy professor and the chair of my department asked me if I wanted to teach a course on feminist theory. And I thought, sure, I'm a feminist. I'm a theorist. Why not? I sent away for textbooks and major works. And I remember sitting in my house and reading these and just thinking, what the hell? I mean, 
There, the, like one of the leading texts was by a feminist philosopher, Alison Jagger, who seemed like kind of a nice, I think she's British, but she was teaching at University of Cincinnati. She's now at University of Colorado. I don't know if she still believes this, but in this book, Feminist Politics and Human Nature, she didn't like liberal feminism that I, equity feminism, let's call it, that I believed in. And she didn't like radical feminism because it wasn't sufficiently Marxist. And she didn't like Marxism because it wasn't sufficiently feminist. So she squished them together, radical feminism and Marxism. And then in her book, she called for a violent revolution to overthrow patriarchy, which she was confident we would win. And I just remember thinking, I mean, I had never read anything quite so bizarre from a philosopher. Philosophers are very careful. Uh, I'm in the, from the analytic tradition. You don't just write something like that and don't, no one talked like that. So I soon went to the American Philosophical Association, to the Society of Women in Philosophy, and sort of pushed back because it wasn't just her. There were many, many readings that were very antagonistic towards our society, did not acknowledge all the enormous progress that I was living and my friends were living and enjoying, <laughs> didn't acknowledge it, and were actually very... There was a, a, some authoritarianism and illiberalism that I didn't appreciate, didn't understand, and thought might be a mistake. And I gave a paper at the APA, the American, I think it was the, the winter of 1988. And at this event, so the room was packed, and as I was speaking, there were feminist philosophers, including one or two friends, who were hissing and stamping their feet, like it was some kind of struggle session or something that I had, I had violated the rules. I was excommunicated that night from a religion I didn't know existed. There were a lot of men in the room, not not a lot. There were a few men in the room, and they were just they just kind of ran for cover. And then I, I I thought, well, this is a problem inside this American Philosophical Association, where it is a tradition. You go there, you read a paper. People poke holes in it, you fight, you argue, and then you go out for drinks. We did not go out for drinks. They were serious. They thought that I was committing heresy. And what I saw that night, turns out, could not be defeated by argument and evidence. Because what happened was there were a lot of feminist scholars who were reasonable and, and wonderful, but they didn't want to tangle with the radical theorists. Either they, they just ignored them or pretended they weren't really saying extreme things. For men, it could be career diminishing because these radical theorists, including Alison Jagger and, and Catherine McKinnon, she's another person that I read in that fateful summer, um, she was describing life for American women in the 80s as a real handmaid's tale or kind of a 1984. And I remember this passage in one of her essays where she said, the oppression, you know, male domination is, is the most perfect system of oppression in the history, practically the most perfect. It is so total that it's almost invisible. Even its victims can't see it. And her idea was that women had just internalized their oppression. We had been defined by men to be used and mostly abused. And I just thought, what is she talking about? This is not, this is a distortion. <laughs> How can anyone believe this? You know, a lot of people believed it. And she had a few statistics, which were ludicrous and not sourced, to prove that like one in five women is forced into prostitution and half of us are battered and on and on. And so I eventually wrote a book called Who Stole Feminism, mm. which is challenging, but naively thought that it would just be enough to 
show there were some fallacies and some and some uh, mm. flawed statistics. It turned out not to be enough because in, in the academy, because a lot of people just did not want to tangle with radical gender theorists. When you when you wrote that paper and you stood up to speak and present it to your peers who no doubt you sat in that room yourself and you'd put your hand up and you'd poke holes in someone else's argument, were you prepared to have people go, hang on a second, I don't really feel that? And were you prepared to Absolutely. engage? I, in fact, I thought maybe I'm missing something. And, yeah. and I, I'll tell you as a philosopher, I enjoy changing my mind. I kind of like it. And this is what I love to do in a class. In a history of philosophy... We would be debating an issue, and I would give them, like, really powerful uh, proofs of free will. And they would all just think, how could anybody doubt free will? And then I would hit them with the arguments for determinism. And then they would think, oh, my God, how did I not see that? And they would have that wonderful experience of looking at yourself and questioning your, your underlying assumptions and then shifting. And it was never my my desire for my students to think the way I did because my, I'm always changing and I want them to be, I just wanted them to be too appreciative that there were these various sides, wanted to expose them to them. So I don't mind changing my mind. And, and if I'm corrected, I kind of find it exhilarating. If I'm really wrong, I mean, I'll be embarrassed if I said something that was wrong, but then I think I'm free of like just being uh, confused or I got it wrong. So I have welcomed that all along, but I, I either what happens is when I present the evidence, I'm either a, attacked as someone who's internalized misogyny or someone who's just an agent of the patriarchy. These absurd claims, and I really think it's a it's a serious problem. I thought it might go away; it just mm. seemed to be lessening in the in the '90s, and we had different sort of lively schools of feminism that seemed to be going back to liberation and fun and well now we are back to handmaid's tale feminism or fainting couch feminism whatever you want to call it and treating men as toxic and sex is a sort of crime scene and all of this is bizarre but i've been fighting it all along when you, you talk about being um that people were accusing you of internalizing misogyny and um you know being a part of, of patriarchy i get that sense that you would have put safeguards within your own system to check for those things? Yes. I, I, for example, I thought when I saw these statistics on uh, rape, that there's just, you know, epidemic levels of sexual violence. I thought, well, you know, it doesn't match my experience and it doesn't describe the men in my life with a few exceptions. So I looked at the data but I tried to go to reliable sources, like the best, the gold it sort of sets the gold standard for crime research in the United States is the Bureau of Justice Statistics. They do a, a crime survey um, and, of citizens, and they have a huge sample of people, meticulous methodology, and they go back and check twice. They talk to the people. They have an 80-plus percent, 80% plus response rate. It's a beautiful study. You know what? It doesn't find a rape culture. It doesn't find a culture of oppression. It, 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 they find that uh, like rape and sexual assault is certainly a problem for a small percentage of people, but the figures are much lower today than they were 20 years ago. It's going down all the time, as is all violent crime. I hope it continues in the United States. Um, 
But none of that was reflected in these textbooks. They've been saying one in four for years. It never changes because they perfected a methodology that would give you an epidemic. But the question that I asked, how does that help victims? How does that help women at risk? They need truth. They need sober, no-nonsense research so we can have good policies and protect people genuinely at risk. Now, I'm sorry, the upper-middle-class young ladies at at Yale or at Swarthmore College, or they are not living in a rape culture, yet the statistics they are fed in their, these gender studies class would make it seem that it, on an elite college campus in the United States, they are at greater risk than women in war-torn Congo. Higher statistics. And these young women, instead of the feminism that I believe in, equity feminism, taking on the world, and a lot of them want to, a lot of them care about justice. Well, then there's so much, the world needs them. There are so many places in the world where there's terrible injustice to women. They could be connected to that. They could be part of that effort. I meet these uh, leaders of international, at these international women's conferences, the sort of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, like the suffragists equivalent, but from Ghana or from Libya or from Iran. <laughs> and they could be connected to that. But instead, they're looking inward and focused on their own oppression. There were oppression by the boys sitting next to them, in, usually like polite upper middle class boys sitting next to them. It's crazy. It's a it's a kind of contagion. However, to go back to your question, I think to myself, well, a lot of smart people believe this, and there are not many academics like me speaking out. So maybe there's something wrong with maybe I'm I have I, I have a blind spot. I have confirmation bias. And so then I try as best I can to um, be open. But then I go back and read their texts, and I can't help but see conspiracy theories and, and baseless statistics. So, you know, I welcome evidence that I'm wrong, but every time I challenge someone, like take something like the wage gap. Mm-hmm. Most economists, including some feminist economists, will tell you that the so-called wage gap is actually just a measure of all men, all women in the workplace. It's just an average of difference. But then you want to do some controls because you just, you know, if you are an engineer, you might earn more than early childhood educator. It turns out that men and women make rather different choices. Women are different, very different in what they major in in college. Like in the United States, you can almost be guaranteed a fairly high income if you major in petroleum engineering. But if you major in social work, you you might find it very fulfilling, but you won't make as much. Well, a majority of the social work and early childhood education majors are women. Majority of petroleum engineers are men. And you do that sort of thing. You look at hours work per week. You look at willingness to you know uh, relocate for the job. All of that, the wage gap, it, it, it diminishes to the point of vanishing. There just isn't, it's not that employers are cheating women out of whatever it is, 26% of their salary. It's that women and men are, on average, somewhat different, make different choices for whatever reason. Now, some feminists will come back at me and say, well, women's choices are gendered, and because of their being oppressed as women, they are forced to take care of children and have... Uh, there's truth in that, but then you want to know it wasn't because they were taking care of children that they chose these college majors. 
And the idea that American women or Australian women, you know, are not freely choosing their majors, I mean, maybe that was true in 1950 or something, but it's 2019, and it seems a little patronizing or matronizing, is that <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you've, so you've, we've, we've been going about 20 minutes and you've, you know, probably a few times, but most recently you've, you've, you've just said that the gender, the wage gap diminishes to the point of vanishing. Um, I know you would never say such a thing where you're not fully backed by evidence and, and, and staunch argument, which you have no doubt researched clearly. There's probably people listening right now who are feeling as if a wave has just crashed over and they're like, that can't be right. Yeah. And they're experiencing possibly something called cognitive dissonance. What happens to us when we are hit with uh, something that just flies in the face of something that we have believed so much? Why do we have that reaction? Well, we're all very in invested in our beliefs and apparently now there's a kind of tribalism emerging. And so if you are converted, I believe it is a conversion because I see analogies with religion. If you are converted to the religion of feminism, it's a total, it's, it's a complete explanation for everything that's gone wrong in your life and everything that's bad. It's an eschatology. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a, a theory of knowledge. It's a, and for someone to come along and disrupt it, and when they hear me say that, they're not just thinking I've disrupted it. They're thinking I haven't because they know it's true. And if you do polls and you ask just by now, it's been repeated so often in this media echo chamber. So it's, it's in the textbooks. It's in the media. These statistics, these feminist victim statistics have been repeated so often they are almost beyond rational analysis. And they've just taken on the aura of absolute truth. So if someone like me comes along, they're going to be skeptical. So I get that, but I would just ask them to think about other areas. For example, when I try, it, people really get upset when you question the rape statistics. A lot of people exploit rape statistics. They've been used to exploit, I mean, President Trump <laughs> has used them to promote fear of, of immigrants and particularly coming across the border, their rape, you know, this kind of thing. Um, this goes back a long time when you want to frighten people. Uh, one very easy appeal, and probably for good reason, is to uh, up, you know outrage people about someone hurting women or hurting children. But women, women and children, people, for good reason, are just wired to be um, outraged, or at least in a civilized society. And I mean, I think it's a good thing that people are outraged. But the question is, what happens when people exploit that? Are we beyond exploiting things like that? No, it goes on all the time. It's called propaganda. I see it being used against Muslims in, in Europe. There's exaggerated statistics about criminology, especially uh, preying on women. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that sexual abuse doesn't happen on our college campus. That happens. So, But that, again, as I said, that's why we need to be sober about finding out why and, and not using it uh, to advance an agenda. But just I just urge people, if you're a little worried about someone like President Trump or some anti-immigration people exaggerating the criminality of immigrants or some, and, and particularly focusing on women, and you question that, don't put it past others. And I don't even think people, I'm not saying people are evil because they do this. I think they, people will tend to believe their own propaganda. Have, knowing that, I think, well, maybe I believe my own propaganda. But then I 
I can't help. I'm just an, I'm, I was an analytically trained philosopher. I look for evidence, just some reason to think this could be true. And I look for, a, you know, the most reasonable explanation. And I just don't think that feminism offers reasonable explanations. Radical feminism, I'm not talking about equity. I don't think it gives good explanations. I think toxic masculinity and male privilege and rape culture and patriarchy, these are ideologically driven concepts built by a series, you know, a succession of articles and books and fact sheets that were never corrected, that were never subject to real peer review. Mm-hmm. You know, the field of gender studies, I just think, has gone off in bizarre directions. Unlike a field like, I don't know, physics or engineering, where you're kind of accountable to a variety of peers, whatever their agenda, you don't want to get it wrong because you'll be there'll be pushback. Hmm. You know, in this field, there's there's only pushback, you know, if you're not sufficiently politically correct. So there'll be intersectional pushback, but it's from the left. You don't get pushback from the center, from, you know, sort of straight forward scholars that just say, oh, you got the data wrong, or you did the, your study is um, flawed. And your but it's, it's, it's so difficult, and a lot of what, your work is based upon that's what you feel, here's the data. Yeah. If I was to break it down fairly yeah. evidently. Yes, you may feel this. I agree that you feel that, and yes, these things are not very good. In fact, some of them are horrible. Here's the data. Yeah. So let's have a conversation about what you feel and where the data is. Right. Now, it's interesting uh, and, and a fascinating, and I just see a parallel. We're here in, uh, we're recording this in Erskineville, Newtown, which is the uh, kind of the vegan craft beer. You it's know, the Portland of Australia. It sure is. Yeah, and know, I go to Portland all the time. It really is. home here. I love it. <laughs> Put a bird on it. Here we are. <laughs> um, but I definitely can relate to that in my uh, in my own experience and that someone I've, I've been eating vegan for nearly 20 years, but I've, I've never really liked being a part of that community or wanting to get involved with that. For I'm quite wary of anyone that sells here, this thing is the answer to everything. If everyone ate vegan, the planet will be saved. Okay, maybe. Maybe. Okay. For me and my personal choice this is what i feel now, are, are you is, a vegan yeah yeah, yeah yeah i i greatly admire it i just can't quite get there I, i'm mm. as far as giving up pork because right. i i can't stand i saw this video i mean i knew this a long time ago but just recently someone posted on on uh, youtube of just pigs being transported you know they're as intelligent as dogs they're very clever very very, very clever, clever they can learn yeah. their names and do tricks yeah. And, <laughs> yeah now people say well that's sentimentalizing no they're complex Animals with really emotions, are. and so um, I hope that I can. Be, I, I would like to be but, a vegetarian, but just along those lines, like yeah. But to, I know what you're talking about. To, be, to looking out for anything that tells you, whether it be a religion, which is often the case, um, that says, okay, this is the, the the key. Here's the legend at the bottom of the map that tells you how to read everything. You know, here's why exactly everything is happening to you. There's something to be questioned. I yes. feel. Uh, yeah. in these situations. When you do say, here's how you feel, and particularly when you're talking about sexual assaults on campus or outside of campus, any sexual assault is a horrible, horrible thing. And I wish it were not the case that it happens in our society. It does happen in our society and it's awful. When these, it happened to me, it's awful. When these things happen and people are rightly outraged that they happen and you say, and here are the numbers about how often it happens right. and there's a difference between that person's outrage and the numbers, how do you find a way to, can, can you find a way to break through? Are you ever able to break through that outrage? One thing I try to do is to point out that, I mean, I've had very angry women standing who, who really t- seem not to like men 
and they're, they use phrases like mansplaining and toxic masculinity. Although sometimes mansplaining can be a thing. But anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen it done. <laughs> well, I have a podcast called The Femsplainers. So <laughs> we allow the occasional mansplainer. But what I try to point out is that I think all of us can think of a really bad person in our lives, in our family history. Um, but then you have to compare that with everybody else. So it's not enough that there was like some horrible person. When you make the next step to implicating all men, let's say, in the in, in atrocities and, and just uh, toxic behavior, that's the step of a bigot. We don't like racial profiling. Why should we like gender profiling? I mean, how is it different? I don't see a difference. I mean, it's just so it's so obvious. Some of these things that I had to I've been refuting all these years just seem like common sense, ethical common sense, that you treat people as individuals. And I know so many men who are would be constitutionally incapable of hurting anyone, but especially a woman, a child. It would never happen. I know this. Yet I know there are some uh, monsters out there to confuse the monster with the vast majority of nice guys. I mean, what, what most guys want is the love of women, <laughs> um, if they're heterosexual. Uh, they don't want to beat up women or, you know, prey on them. I mean, that, that's absurd. It's, it's, as I keep using this word, it's distorted. But, you know, increasingly, especially among young women, especially educated young women, this is becoming, this, this view, this distorted view is gaining momentum. So I'm, even though I've been doing this for all these years and thought I would go on to other things like living in the south of France and reading 19th century novels, <laughs> I still want to fight and I want to give younger, the millennials um, particularly, it's early in the century, it's not defined yet, so I don't think the gender war element has to win. And remember, in all, they have declared like a gender war. They think men are warring against them. Um, they're not. There are some monsters. And even the story of the monsters is complicated because they're not all alike. There's some sociopaths. There's psychopaths. There's some people with mental health you know, disorders. There's all kinds of things going on in a small percentage of men. The majority of men aren't like that. But they want to say that they are. And I say that's... Um, that's not feminism. It's um, bigotry. It's, it's turning into bullying, an excuse for bullying. And what I think the great new, people talk about the first wave of feminism where women won the vote, the second wave where we were liberated and many, many changes in the laws I talked about earlier. And there's a lot of debate about the third wave. Everybody's fighting over what that is. And some have just moved on, said a fourth wave. No, I don't think we've had the third wave, but I think we might. And I think the millennials... And the, what are they called? The, there's another word they're giving for people, even the younger millennials. I think they have a chance, which is real equality between men and women. We really are joining one another. We've, we're in, in the best part of the Me Too movement, I have some criticisms of the Me Too, but mostly I liked it because women were just clearly saying, we're renegotiating this contract, this sexual contract, and there's going to be more respect and just less hassling and, you know, and predation. And there's a real opportunity for equality that the world has never seen. And that's what we should be for. Not telling men to shut up and be quiet and, and check your privilege. That's bullying. So that's what I'm hoping. Do you feel though, like as someone who 
I, I, I'm just a bit of history. I'm two of four boys. I went to an all-boys school. The only women I knew that weren't my mum were my, my accounting teacher and my music teacher. So by the time I hit the workforce, I really didn't have much scope of women's role in society and capability. I was quite shaped by that kind of, you know, boys club way of looking at the world. And when I got spat out into the workforce, I I learned very quickly that the way I was speaking, the words I was using was not okay. And not okay. And see, what, what, what can happen if you go to a boys school and you're only around um, and then you add that to the sexual revolution where, you know, it was supposed to be just, oh, everybody's getting it on. And it's, a lot of men thought mistakenly, I think, that women saw things the way they did. So you would ask a guy, like, what would you think if, you know, if someone did an experiment, there's actually a, an experiment. They would have attractive member of a class, and it was done both in 75, then again in 85. Attractive member of a college classroom would go up to a member of the opposite sex and proposition them. So a handsome man would go to a handsome young woman and say, or a girl would go to, a beautiful girl would go to a boy and say, you're so sexy, let's go back to my dorm room and have sex. 100% of the women said no. They were bewildered. They were insulted. 75% of the men said, okay. And 100% were complimented. Now, that's a difference. And I think we haven't been clear with many young men, and especially if you go to a boys' school, it never came up. That I mean, they stipulate there are some girls that are as wild and uh, sexually adventurous as any man, but a lot of them aren't and want to be treated a certain way. And we lost... The, sort of the ability to transmit that to young men. So I think there's confusion. Rather than culpability and toxicity, mm. there's confusion. So rather than punish and no one can ever be forgiven, if I mean, unless you're talking about criminal predation, but that's not what's going on. Most, I mean, a, a little bit is going on, but mostly what's going on and a lot of the Me Too things that have come out are it sort of, you know, say an Anzar... Uh, um, what was his name? The comedian. Uh, uh, there's well. You, oh no, I'm not Louis, Louis, Louis C.K. That's a special. All oh, right, yeah. You mean Aziz Ansari? <laughs> Aziz Ansari. Right. How and did you know case, I was thinking Louis C.K.? Yeah, no. That's, well, that, that's, that's, that's not okay. But you know, even the Louis C.K. case, I look at that and I think, um, uh, what do they call it? A paraphilic disorder. He may have exhibitionism, like about four percent. No, but if but here's the thing: you look like I don't care. I don't no, care. No, 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 I didn't say I don't care. I'm just like, that may be the case. Yeah. The young- but, but if it is the case, then um, why isn't there outreach? Like people that have, and I just didn't even think about this except at the height of the Me Too era, there was a, a psychologist, Dr. Berliner, uh, who runs a clinic, or he did, I'm not sure he still does, in, at Johns Hopkins for people with sexual disorders that are antisocial. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. child molesters, but other things, exhibitionists and voyeurs and fetishists of, that are, you know, across the line. People that have that um, often don't want to yeah. do it. They destroy their lives yeah. because, of the, because of this mania. And it just occurs to me not to forgive them because it's terrible and they can't ever do it. But shouldn't there be some outreach to people when they're fairly young 
that they can get help because there are ways of controlling it and you know not doing it. You have to get people young. And I read that they are trying that in Germany and Holland. They're trying to reach out even to people who have urges to prey on children, which is a horrible thing. But in the United States, there's just very little outreach, and there's almost um, uh, disincentives for seeing a psychologist because if you say the wrong thing, they have to call the police. Yeah, yeah. So if you, even if you say, I've seen those campaigns in the Germany. They're extraordinary, actually. The 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 TV ad. Uh, have you seen it? With a it's a it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's a, it's a young man. He's probably in his twenties, and he's sitting on a train. And a young mum and her young son, who's probably about four, get on the train. And he's the man's looking out the window and his eyes keep going back to the little boy. And the super, it's in German, the super says, do you love kids a little bit too much? There's help. Call now. You know, see, That's that, a TV commercial. That is humane. And more importantly, if you genuinely, which I believe most people do, you want to stop it, you got to understand it, and then you've got to figure out how to solve it. We, 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 got, we went around, around a corner, but I did want to ask you, because I only want to ask because you mentioned privilege, and I talked about my own experience, because I was, I've got to say, I was, I, I was very fortunate to work in a, in a female-heavy workplace. Um, the, I work in television, and the mm. TV is very heavily female. That's a career women like and yeah. are and moving I ahead. Was very for, I was very fortunate to have a, 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 a quite a forthright young woman just quite pull me up and go, this is, you, you can't speak this way, this is not okay, that's not all right. And since then you said the words check your privilege but do you feel it's important for me as, as a man walking through the world to at least be aware of things that are given to me and assumed of me that are not given to and assumed of women? Well, that's a basic uh, – well, not just of women. I mean, I think it's a basic precept of morality to um, be aware that you have benefits and advantages that others don't. And that, that, that just, we didn't need a political and a, and a, and a divisive – sort of gendered movement to understand that. However, I will say, as a woman, we have a lot of privileges too. Um, and I mean, I, I have this uh, series called The Factual Feminist. And I look at- your YouTube videos. My YouTube videos. Yes. And I have one about, uh, should men check their privilege? And I conclude after reviewing the evidence that maybe, but then um, if they should, then women should too. Because we, we happen to have like feminist groups that are very- vocal and always pointing out ways in which women are disadvantaged. We do not have comparable organizations for men, but if we did, they could do the same thing and they could point out that uh, boys are disadvantaged at school, at system, and this is true in Australia, it's true in, across the world. Um, women are now more likely to go to college and overtaking entire fields. I mean, psychology and for whatever reason, veterinary medicine. It used to be all men and now it's almost all women. Um, and it's men that typically are the warriors. It's men that typically have the gritty, dangerous jobs. I mean, I find all these like gender studies professors deploring the patriarchy when they exist because there's all this infrastructure that was provided by hardworking, mostly men doing the gritty work, the truckers and the window cleaners. I, you know, I've never seen, like, let's have a parody for high-rise window cleaners. And some young man came to my house that they, I was moving furniture, and he, he works on towers. He was just working on the weekend, moving heavy furniture, and then during the week to get his, himself through college, he climbs towers. I said, doesn't that frighten your mother, you know, to have him? And there's a high, very high rate of deaths. Like in the United States, something like 94% of workplace deaths are men. So I just want 
the complicated truth about privilege. Women are privileged because men are willing to do a lot of jobs we don't want to do or maybe can't do. But men have their privilege. It's a complicated mix of burdens and benefits. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It, it, what you, the very nature of what you try to approach. Uh, as you know, what happened that night in '88 is proven to be extraordinarily complex. So complex that people react uh, to the point where, like, we don't want to talk about that. That's way we're, we're going to get tangled in there. There's, uh, I've, you know, in getting ready for this, I saw a number of actually uh, videos of you trying to speak at a, a college campus, trying to give a lecture, trying to engage in a discussion, much like the one we're having. Right. People coming into the room. And, and shouting you down. Now, I'm a person who has gone to protests. I've protested. I've marched in the street. I've shouted slogans in a march, in a street, in a, yeah, you me know, too. that's probably, you know, I haven't yet gone to heckle a, you know, a person from the Liberal Party. I may yet. I don't know. Um, <laughs> though that's out on the street. In a university campus, is there, do you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're probably going to say yes. Um, it seems to me that there is increasingly an issue of, say, for example, in uh, I'm just making this up. I don't know if you know this has actually happened, but say, for example, in a gender studies course, there may be okay. There's one lecture we're going to talk about violence, and there's a trigger warning at the start of the lecture. For example, like that, some universities are required now to give a trigger warning before difficult issues are discussed within. Yeah, uh, you just stop right there for yes? a second. There is not an iota of evidence that trigger warnings help anybody. Right. It's, these things were. These, this didn't come out of uh, clinical literature about PTSD. It came out of the feminist blogosphere by people who are using it to assert their power, and it's a power grab. Because it, and it's, I just urge anybody, like, look for any evidence that trigger warnings are helpful. They're right. not. And same with safe spaces. Now, stipulate. You can have a safe space if you mean a place to get together, if you're, you know, on a college campus and just want to go away with your friends and yeah. your, your African-American or your Jewish kids and your Hispanic kids. You may want to just, for whatever reason, but to want a safe space, the classroom is not a safe space. It should be an right. unsafe space for... Um, where real you know, ideas that challenge your way of thinking. But anyway, I interrupted you. What no, 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 because I was, I was trying to get to the point. It always struck me as a university is a place where big ideas, mm -hmm. sometimes difficult ideas, uh, and we touched on this earlier, are uh, thrown up in the air, like, well, let's throw it to the, the wall and we can all have a look at it and here's some parts that are going to make me 
my stomach churn, but the person across the air thinks, no, that's a really good idea. And yet somewhere, you know, I've got to be aware that whatever's making my stomach churn might not 100% be true. And what making them believe it's real might not 100% be true. Somewhere in the middle, there's going to be a place that the two of us can come together and we'll find a new truth and that will be the path towards something that we can bring us all forward, like enlightenment style. This is, you know, the thing that brought us forward. Now, that's from what I believed, what a a university campus was designed to do was let's push ideas together and let's get better ideas out of that. That's what, that's the whole idea is that you have this, this contention and we are better thinkers when people push back, and then we have to reconsider. And when I, I think one of the tapes you saw was Lewis and Clark Law School, this beautiful law school. There's a law school named after the guys that walked across the... Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, these patriarchal oppressors. (laughs) (laughs) The Oregon Trail. Uh, It was was Lewis and Clark uh, University in in Portland, where my my late mother and sister lived. And um, I went to this, this law school. These weren't... 18, 19 year olds, these were older adults in law school. I thought law school was where you learned. It was all about argument and counter argument and making a case and making a case for someone you don't even necessarily believe uh, is innocent. But they learned to do that. So uh, I went there and I don't know what they were thinking, but they, a small group stipulated it wasn't the majority of the kids. And most of those kids were pretty progressive and maybe believed a lot of feminist things I don't agree with. But they were not happy with this, but a sizable minority would not allow me to speak. And they were marching around and screaming. They had chants. And it was absurd. But what bugged me is that I, I like to go to law schools. Um, the kids are sharp and they've been trained. I, and sometimes I have to rethink something. And I, as I told you, I enjoy that. But I like doing it to them. And what I love about law students is they're used to that. Like, oh, yeah, you know. And that couldn't happen because... They wanted to protect, prevent the conversation. And what you're saying and what I agree with is that if universities become inhospitable to genuine debate over issues so fundamental about relations between men and women, about basic justice, if they become in, inhospitable to such, they, they lose their reason for being. When you are going into a, de- a debate and, and clearly you are who you are, you have written the books you've written uh, and they have a very clear focus. When you are trying to have a discussion with someone who is perhaps equally, uh, you know, not just someone like I grabbed off the street to come and talk to you, someone's like, oh, no, no, I know the rules of the game. I've, you know, I, I've probably been to a university. I've, I've studied, you know, discussion and debate and, and, you know, how to bring an argument to its fruition. Where do you begin? Where do you start? How do you prepare yourself? Do you go, I'm going to defeat this person and make them believe what I believe? Or do you go, well, maybe I could have my mind changed. How do you, is it somewhere in between? You know, I almost, I, uh, maybe it's a personality defect, but I'm kind of friendly and I, I tend to like people and even the people I debate, I can like them. I can't hate, um, the, you know, partly because my family, uh, my late mother, but my living sister and my niece, uh, who's a vegan, and um, uh, they're very left-wing, more, far more than me. And I love them. I understand them. I even kind of agree. I can see the world the way they see it. I don't agree with everything they think, but I can't hate people because they're far-left feminists. And, you know, I, I think they're human beings. And 
they probably think they're doing the right thing. So I just meet them as as, hum- as equals and hope to change their minds and hope them to see that I'm sincere and maybe mistaken and just that they, I hope they extend the same courtesy to me. And uh, sometimes it's amazing. I've, I've made friends. Um, I've debated at some law schools. And there was one professor I debated. We were I was there to debate. Well, actually, both of us were confused about the topic. I thought it was the war on boys, and she thought it was something else. But I started talking about boys. But she was an expert on labor. And she gave her speech, and I gave mine. And at some point, our eyes met, and we realized we were talking about the same thing. <laughs> because I don't know if it's true in Australia, but in the United States, the uh, fate of uh, minimally educated men you know, men without education beyond high school, the wages have just fallen. And the world has shattered. They can't, it's almost impossible to make it into the middle class now without education beyond high school. And this is a a, a challenging problem, and it has uh, all sorts of ramifications. Well, only more challenging is automation kicks in harder as well. Exactly, exactly. What what do you do? Well, we've got to be careful because this is the, we're talking about the future of our economies, the Mm. future of our workforce, and... These we now have very good studies that young men that aren't educated and can't really get um, any kind of hold in the workplace, um, they don't form families. They do have children out of wedlock, and then they become the woman has to work. It's just it's dysfunctional. Mm. But anyway, when I was debating her and she was seeing what was happening, um, and she was more very left wing, you know, but she was talking about the need for unions and what how it protected the working men. And suddenly I saw her point and she saw my point. We were talking about the same thing, but from mm. a different perspective. So I loved it when that happened. And it could have happened at Lewis and Clark Law School. Yeah. There was a kid there from Black Lives Matter, a student. Um, and he was so apologetic. He came up and said, look, I'm not sure I agree with you, although some of the few things I thought you were saying, I, we could find some common ground. But he wasn't able to hear me mm. because the... Uh, so I think when people, when colleges are getting a bad name from the call-out culture, it's it's a small group, but the others need to find their voice and insist on openness and debate. But it feel, we just had an election. You've, you've arrived the day after we had a yes. state election here in this in this state, and I'm sure you know there's probably that guy over there hanging at his laundry. He's got 300 friends on Facebook, and every single one of them is a Greens voter. He can't fathom how the Liberal Party got in. Right. He was like, everyone I know voted Greens, you know, because he's in this, you know, the the availability the, the availability heuristic in his life where yes. it looks in his phone and all he sees in his phone is yeah. things that agree with him. He then gets this idea that the world is this way. It isn't. Um, and then when it doesn't go his way, everything's yeah. horrible. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very tough. How do we protect ourselves from losing our ability to have objective thought about tricky things? Well, I'll just tell you what I do. Because I understand all too well as a philosopher, what, and, and having read a lot of what psychologists have to say about confirmation bias and about tribalism, I, I can recognize it in myself. And uh, be, fortunately, because of my family, I can't um, dehumanize the other side because I love them. And I make a point of listening to a lot of podcasts and read people I, oh, it's hard sometimes and they can irritate me. But I, I try not to lose touch with that. And I try to follow people on Twitter that I disagree with and um, not to get lost on my own little island, of, you know, where 
I mean, just everybody's reinforcing. Everything makes sense. Everyone's it, it, yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. Look, that's yeah. the thing I just said, but in a different way. <laughs> right. I'm clearly right. Yes. <laughs> so that that's that's important though. But that's hard. I'm busy. I've got to pick the kid up from dancing. I've got. Yeah, to, you, you know, know, no, but you have time. You, everybody has time to read something that's just a little. I mean, it used to be that we had magazines that would kind of give you both sides. And so you would have, I don't know, Newsweek and Time didn't used to be that. So everybody was reading those magazines, probably equivalent. And they were sort of down the middle and would give both sides. You don't get enough. We don't have enough of that now. So I would be so grateful for a podcast which got you know really smart people on both sides to debate. Mm-hmm. I think that's the future is just having a part of the, of the Internet that is the best that was thought and said by both sides coming together on mm-hmm. minimum wage or, you know, what the statistics say about immigration and what should be, you know, that kind of, and hearing, you can, I do change my mind. I change my mind on immigration all the time. I'll hear a better argument and I forgot about this and I forgot to consider that and I change my mind. So I think a lot of people are, they, I mean, they're, I'm kind of set on these women's issues because I've been studying them for so long and I'm a little suspicious of any claims about massive oppression. I mean, I just don't think they're going to make that case. I could be surprised, but I'm, I'd be, I'm, you know, I'm not that open to being changed because I just don't see what the road, what, what the path would be to proving something like that. But on so many other issues, I think I, I must be like a lot of people that I realize I don't know a lot. I could be persuaded. Uh, uh, hearing a professor say I don't know a lot is pretty excellent. <laughs> that's a pretty excellent thing. That's a, that's, a, that's a kind of humility that many people might not have, you know, particularly when people, if they do live in this kind of bubble of, you know, they follow this Facebook person, that Instagram person, these Twitter people, and they just lend down these neural pathways that just get more and more and more ingrained. Right. So their ability to imagine things outside of those becomes quite limited when an idea outside of that shows up. As you mentioned earlier, it's very easy to dehumanize that person and go, well, clearly they're bonkers. Yeah, or an issue comes up and you think, well, what's, so I identify with this tribe, like say legalization of marijuana. There's an example of something like, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe. It seems okay. I mean, I liked it when I was younger. Uh, maybe we should do that. But then I've heard other arguments, you know. But I am i don't know enough to mm. have a decisive, aggressive opinion. So I think that uh, I share that with a lot of people. So yeah. we do need to hear but so much of the media in the United States, partly because of Donald Trump. He hasn't been a good influence on uh, journalism because people rightly think that he's nuts and want to combat him. But they've kind of lost touch with trying to be objective, and they've kind of undermined their own credibility. I think they got a little carried away with what was going to be in the Mueller report. Everybody waited today to find out that he's going to jail. He's going to be dra- my mother, my late mother, bless her heart. I mean, she she wanted to live to see him dragged out of that because of the Mueller report. I kept saying, Mom, I don't know. You know, I don't know if he has the attention span for a conspiracy. <laughs> Takes some focus and plan. He doesn't have that. Maybe it's not going to happen. He's not. He, he might be corrupt, but I don't know that he's. A, a, capable of collusion in the long term. And she would say, no, no, I heard it on MSNBC. I heard it on the news, you know. And a lot of people just got invested in something that turned out to be, I don't know what. I mean, not that it's good, but it's not what they thought. Mm. I fear a little that, um, because you mentioned you mentioned Donald Trump and the, and the way that did his election did surprise a Shocked. lot of people around the world. Um, it was kind of a fluke. The the way that people who are, say, centrist or left of centre, um, from there over to the edge, the way 
that I, I have heard people talk about anyone further to the right is often with disdain or, you know, mocking or, you know, instantly labelling, well, you're clearly racist because you voted for that person. Um, and that's, you know, in large part as well, if, okay, well, if that's what you think I am, then boom, it yep. tries no, to no, drive it, things it drives people away. further over. And it's not even fair. I've had a colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Tim Carney, who just came out with a book where he went out to find the core Trump supporter. Who oh. was it? And what he discovered was very interesting that, the, that what we call the Trump base, and people are mistaken if they think it's conservative. Just look like leading American conservatives are kind of traumatized by Trump and horrified. Well, he's not a Republican. No, he's not. <laughs> he's and his not. Well, views on trade and, yeah. and, and North Korea. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's shocking. He found that, uh, and he looked, he found two qualities. One, they are people who voted prior to the Trump, they voted for Obama before, and they were, and Trump was their first choice in the primaries. Now, the vast majority of Republicans never even considered him, but the core Trump supporter, they were Obama supporters. They're working class guys in the, in the, in, and some women in um, the, what's called the Rust Belt. And what Tim Carney found was they, they've come from communities that are just torn apart yeah. by and, and massive amounts of opioid addiction and lost jobs and no civic institutions. He, he would go to, to uh, communities that had a lot of social capital, and they could be working class, but they still had churches and synagogues and clubs. These, these are coming from communities where people are just lost. Mm. And... If they were racist, you know, it might have shown by them, you know, hating Obama, but they didn't. They voted for him, uh, and then they went to Trump. So it's something. It's I think it's been misunderstood and misanalyzed uh, by too many reports. How how can people in uh, who consider themselves kind of in the center, how can they begin to engage people further to the right? Do you feel because at the moment it it feels that well, it doesn't help calling them racist, white supremacist, misogynist, toxic. That's just irritating to anybody. Yeah. Um, it helps to kind of understand. And, I mean, I don't think Trump, Mr. Trump has policies that are going to help th uh, these people. I don't see the educational reform. I don't see the, the funding that's going to have to go into uh, transforming uh, just impoverished communities. Um but do it out of out of a spirit of I don't know friendliness and yeah. concern. Just I I don't like this, and it's just the most dangerous emotion towards another human being is contempt, because it means you really don't see any value to their existence. You have contempt. You have no respect for their humanity. I mean. Are there people I might have contempt for? I mean, people that were just intoxicated with hatred and evil people. But most people aren't like that. Most people think they're trying, kind of trying to do the right thing. Maybe they're not doing it intelligently or they're poorly informed. But I worry that if we approach one another in this as, you know, increasingly uh, uh, divided tribes, and instead of trying to bring people, the, the, the history of social uh, movements that were successful, if you go to, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the women's rights movement, the great leaders were able to show our common humanity. You changed minds by opening hearts and unleashing people's empathy and just 
fellow feeling and recognizing themselves in you, the other, the other you became part of the family. Um, but there's another tradition, which is common enemy politics. Instead of trying to get others to see your share, show that you know them to understand that we share humanity, you try to, you treat them as an enemy. You have contempt. You dehumanize. You objectify. You demonize. And that's we have too much of that right now. It's tempting because it's exhilarating. I mean, hate is an intoxicating emotion, but it's a dangerous emotion. And it's not. There's I don't I can't think of any great social uh, movement of social progress that proceeded on hatred. Usually, it's love and humanity. But it feels so good to write something angry and then hit I enter. I know. I know. And, you know, I, and I've I tried. I, I like on Twitter. I get really mad at somebody, and then I want to. Like say, and I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> the mechanism for how we communicate may have something to do with it. For it is far more satisfying to to write, yeah, he should have hit him, or whatever it is of a video. You know, you know that's the thing I'm questioning now because uh, I've been on Twitter a, a lot, uh, and I think it addled my brain a little bit because now I'm going off trying to go off on weekends, and mm. when I come back, I mean, I'm I'm a different person. Mm-hmm. So I recommend it if you're an, an addict like I am, but. If people really analyze themselves, when I, once in a while I'll write, I mean, not anymore, but I used to write something that I knew was uh, provocative to somebody. Usually it was, I mean, I will say, if, usually I get angry if it's somebody like with a big following and they're bullying somebody, then I want to hurt them. So I'll come in and get after them. And then I kind of wait. But then actually, it doesn't feel that good. It feels, it makes me nervous. And then I'm checking Twitter all the time and seeing, oh, good, I'm getting a lot of, you know, retweets. It's actually anxiety. It's not. It doesn't make you happy. <laughs> so I, I urge people to analyze that experience and maybe become nicer on Twitter. <laughs> Seeing empathy for the others, changing minds by opening hearts. Well, I don't want to ruin Twitter. <laughs> no, I don't know. But just the idea. <laughs> no, of what no, no, no. I know what you're. But saying. what you're saying, like, but seeing yourself in another, changing a mind by opening a heart. These seems to be, I mean, and you, and you wouldn't have mentioned this had you not said no. These are the way, these are the precursors to a successful social movement. Yes, I think that's a cracking lesson for us to hear from you today. I'm really grateful we had the chance to speak today. Well, I enjoyed speaking to you. Welcome to our country, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That was Christina Hoff-Summers. You can find her on Twitter, C-H-S-O-M-M-E-R-S. Thank you very much to my producer, Andy Ma, who turned this episode around super quick. My producer, Rachel Barrett, for helping me and Christina get in the same room at the same time. Mike Mills for making the music today. And you, you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you on Monday. It's not very long. So we'll see each other again or hear each other again. Or you look at your phone and see my photo and then you can pretend to see me. Uh, that is, if you have the old artwork on you. Oh, never mind. I'll just... I'll talk to you Monday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.